We're going to be in Acts chapter 20, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, you might want to wander to the back there and get one off of the bookshelf and have one in your laps. This is... It's one of those teachings, it's one of those stories in the Bible that if you've been in church for a while, you may have heard it. If you haven't really had much church in your life, it's a story that you'll hear and go, really? It's, it's an amazing little vignette, truly actually happened, kind of shocking, very short. In fact, I'll, I'll be honest with you all, I, I chose to teach on this this morning. Several weeks ago, I, I looked ahead and I thought, well, hey, week of Thanksgiving, that'll be kind of fun, teach that story. And that was fully my intention. It wasn't spiritual, it wasn't doctrinal, it just sounded like fun to me. So, hey, let's do that. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. I, I will warn you, I found far more in here than just a little bit of fun. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together, and there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep, and he fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. <laughs> but when Paul went down and Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. And when he had gone back up and had broken bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak, and then left. They took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. Isn't that the best? (laughs) I love God's Word. I love that He doesn't skirt the bizarre stories, the strange stories, the stories that each one of us could very much be a part of at some point in our lives. Well, Father, I ask that Your Spirit would do more than just tickle our ears with an interesting, a curious story this morning. I pray, Lord, that you will open our eyes. And, Lord, that you will open our hearts. Not against our will, but I I pray that we would choose to hear from you today. I ask that everyone in the sanctuary this morning will have ears to hear what your Spirit has to say to us, to this fellowship, through your Word. So, Father, come and teach us and, and fill this place with your Spirit. As we lean into your word and feed upon it now in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me just say to you all, in case I don't get the chance before Thursday, happy Thanksgiving. It is Thanksgiving week, yet again. It's come back around. Are you ready to get another holiday under your belts? (laughs) See, that's the only one I've got for you this morning. Did you know... Did you know there was an entire job devoted to Thanksgiving? First Chronicles, chapter 23, which tells us that King David said, verse 25, The Lord God of Israel has given rest to His people, and He dwells in Jerusalem forever. Also the Levites will no longer need to carry the tabernacle and all its utensils for its service. 
For by the last words of David, the sons of Levi were numbered from twenty years old upward. For their office is to assist the sons of Aaron with the services of the house of the Lord, that is the temple, in the courts and in the chambers and in the purifying of all the holy things, even the work of the service of the house of God, and with the showbread and the fine flour for a grain offering and unleavened wafers or what is baked in the pan or what is well mixed, all measures of volume and size. Sounds like my house on Thanksgiving morning. But listen, verse 30, they are to stand every morning to thank and to praise the Lord and likewise at evening. What a great job. The job of the Levites was to stand every morning and likewise every evening for the sole purpose of thanking the Lord and praising Him. Thanksgiving every day. Morning and evening. And what was the task of the Levites is the call of the follower of Jesus. Because the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. They were asked the question, what's God's will for my life? Thank Him. Thankfulness. In everything give thanks. Constantly thanking the Lord. In all manner of circumstances in your life, thank the Lord. Thanksgiving every day. Now, there's a moment on Thanksgiving Day when the meal is done, the dishes are cleared, the feet go up, maybe in your house the game goes on. In the Crawford home, we always at that moment turn on for the first time of the season the cool jazz sounds of Vince Guaraldi's A Charlie Brown Christmas. And the music wafts through the house, And you put all of this together and it promotes one of the best naps of the year. Thank God for tryptophan. Tryptophan! I I said this on Wednesday night. I said, hey, Sunday morning, come on back for the teaching. We're going to talk about tryptophan at Troas. And Paul is here at Troas in Acts chapter 20. Tryptophan at Troas. And and Spencer kind of looked at me and he goes... Trip to what? What do you say? That's a tryptophan. And I think Spencer went home Wednesday night thinking that was some kind of a theological term. (laughs) Tryptophan is an essential amino acid in the body, in the diet. The body uses it to make proteins. It uses it to make niacin, the B vitamin niacin. Uses uh, tryptophan to make serotonin and to develop melatonin, that natural sleep aid. And tryptophan is found in large amounts in Turkey. Not the bird, the bird, not the country. Large amounts of this amino acid. And it is thought by many to cause drowsiness. And if you've ever been drowsy on the Thanksgiving afternoon, if you are typically drowsy like I am every year on Thanksgiving, by, by about a half hour after dinner, I'm just in a, in a stupor. Many believe that's because of tryptophan. Of course, stuffing, marshmallow jams, mashed potatoes and gravy, rolls and butters, pumpkin pie with whipped cream, all that carbohydrate, that helps a bit too. Put it all together and there is that drowsiness of the day where you just feel like putting back your head and you don't really even care if your team's doing well. All you need is that background drone, you know, and off you go. So it's timely. That the story in our text this morning is one of a drowsy young man. 
named Eutychus. Now, I don't make this stuff up. But Eutychus's name means fortunate. This is the same boy we just read. Fell out the window and died. Okay? His name means fortunate. It actually is better than that. It's a compound name that takes two Greek words and puts them together. You, E-U, you, which means good. And Tachano, which means falling in. His name means good falling in. He had a bad falling out, really, but I guess it works either way. A good falling in. He is, it means to fall into good times or, or to fall into to fortune. And in our story, all's well that ends well. But it's just so ironic. If you ever are curious in, in a passage of Scripture, I, I encourage you, look up the names of people in the Bible. It's just incredible how the name parallels the story. So here we have Eutychus, and in verse 7, we're told on the first day of the week, when we, Luke is writing, were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. Now there are several things I'd like you to jot down if you're a note taker. I'll give you five things to to track through this teaching this morning, and the story of Eutychus. We're at Troas. Note this, number one, it was a Sunday evening. Well, that's important. It was a Sunday evening on the first day of the week when we gathered together to break bread. F.F. Bruce says this is the earliest unambiguous evidence we have for the Christian practice of gathering together for worship on the first day of the week. The first one that's unambiguous. They gathered together to break bread, to share in communion. To take the unleavened bread and the wine in commemoration of the body and blood of Jesus, of His sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. So they met together for this purpose. Now, this weekly meeting on Sundays is implied by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. He says, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. And so we can say, okay, why on the first day of each week? Because that's when they met. That's when they got together. And traditionally, going all the way back to the earliest times, the church met on Sundays. Now, I know some will argue that point. Some say, no, Sunday church shouldn't happen. We must keep the Sabbath as a day of rest. Seventh-day Adventists are keepers of the Sabbath. Their worship service is on Saturdays, on Sabbath. Because they believe very strongly that you should meet on the Sabbath, that it's a requirement of God. And actually, they'll go further. They blame Constantine, the emperor, back in the early 300s AD, for taking and introducing Sunday worship into the pagan culture to appease pagan culture by having it on Sunday. They say the Sunday was named for the worship of the sun god. And so Constantine just kind of putting the church and the paganism together, put it all on Sunday. So let's just, let's just worship all together here, pagans and Christians alike, no big deal. Sunday. Of course, i got to ask the question, wasn't Saturday named after the god Saturn for worship of that god? So it really doesn't matter one way or the other if you're looking at that. It's, it's a poor reasoning for not meeting on Sunday. And Constantine's intention set aside, a hundred years earlier, a man by the name of Tertullian, a Christian, prolific Christian writer, wrote that the church met every first day of the week. 
So at 200 AD, the church 100 years before Constantine was already meeting every Sunday. That was the meeting day. Why? Because that's when Jesus rose from the dead. And because the early Christians said, man, if there's a time to meet consistently, that's it. To remember Christ rising from the dead. To consider His sacrifice. John chapter 20 verse 1 tells us, On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Sunday. That same evening, John chapter 20 verse 19 says, When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. The early church went so far as even to call it the Lord's Day. I believe that's what John was referring to in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1 verse 10. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day when I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. Why Sunday? Because it's the day when Jesus rose up. It's also the day, gang, Pentecost, when the Spirit came down. And so the worship on Sunday, it's been this way for, for a long time. And I would suggest this to you. Rather than the debate or the argument over Saturday or Sunday, rather realize that we take our rest, we find our peace, we have our greatest comfort in the resurrected Jesus who is the Lord of the Sabbath every day. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. You know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, go to church every first day of the week. And you will receive rest. Although I believe you can. I believe you do if the focus of our meeting is Jesus. Absolutely. But he says further, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn, er, and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. The heart is the spirit. The soul, gang, is the mind. You will find rest for your mind. Who needs a little soul rest in this world? Where our minds are spinning like crazy. Where we're looking at what's happening in the world around us. The brutality, the terror, the tragedy. And every day of our lives we see these ugly things. And I need a little break. I need rest for my soul. And the truth is you're not going to find it on Saturday. Saturday being the day off, you know, we we take Saturday, Sunday in our culture. That's kind of our our weekend. We end the week. We take the day off. Who really gets rest on Saturday? We went to Costco yesterday. (laughs) There was nothing restful about that day off. Jesus doesn't say, go find your rest on Saturday. He doesn't say, take your rest on Sunday. Sabbath was a picture. Sabbath is a covenant requirement God had for the people of Israel, but it is a picture of the rest that Jesus says you can have every day, 24-7. Take your rest in me, Jesus says. And we gather together, we do every first day of the week. We do it other times as well. We share communion together. We remember Christ's crucifixion and His resurrection. We think about Jesus, hopefully, to encourage that peace every day. Every day. And royal priesthood, I say, be like the Levites. They were the priesthood. And their job was thanksgiving every morning and every evening. Because thanksgiving has a way of putting personal opinions to bed. It has a way of awakening the heart 
to a Jesus who brings rest, who brings peace, who gives comfort when and always when we need it. Paul wrote about those who argued different days. In Romans 14, verse 5, he said, One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, some of you on Thursday are going to be pigs. Pigs with turkey. That's what you're going to be. Others of you are going to be on a diet. And I'm not going to say which is right and which is wrong, but I I think... I think there's a right way to go, but that's my opinion. Paul says, he who observes the day, and I think this applies so well to Thanksgiving. He who observes the day, observes it for the Lord. And he who eats, does so for the Lord. Hallelujah, pass the yams. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat. Hallelujah, I'm on a diet. And he gives thanks to God. Don't forget what this week is about. This is why it's my favorite holiday of the year. Because it's all about thanking God. More than any other time. And I love it that here in America, we we recognize, still nationally, we recognize Thanksgiving. What about the separation of church and state, man? Who are you thanking? Who does the atheist who's chowing down on turkey think he's thanking? Still God. Abraham Lincoln was the one who set this thing up. Back in 1863, he said, let's set aside that day. It'll be the, the last day of November for Thanksgiving to our great and beneficent Father in Heaven. And so our country keeps Thanksgiving. Now, Franklin Delano Roosevelt actually moved it back a week to add an extra week between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Make a little more time for people to spend money, help the economy, so people started calling it Franksgiving. <laughs> But it is a day to thank the Lord. And thankfulness does set opinion aside. Because the moment I start thanking God, I start looking at God. When I start to thank Jesus, I start recognizing how He has blessed me. In spite of the messes I may have made with the blessings, He has blessed me incredibly, richly, over the top. And it just brings such peace and comfort. I tell you what, try this. If you're stressed out, thank God. If you're worried about something, start thanking God for what He has done. If you feel anxious in this world, pause and just begin a prayer of thanks and think about how He has blessed you. It will change your life. It will lift your spirits. It will fill your heart just to thank the Lord. Well, it was Sunday evening. Back to the story. Sunday evening, there in Troas, the believers are all meeting together. And not only was it Sunday evening, it was, number two, some serious preaching. Paul went on and on and on, preaching right up till midnight. And dear family, you ain't heard me preach that long. Don't push me. I love it. It wasn't a dialogue. It wasn't a conversation. The Bible's very clear what was going on there. It tells us that he prolonged his message until midnight, and the word message there is logos. Logos, which is the word, the reason, the mind of God, the logos who is Jesus. John chapter 1 tells us, in the beginning was the word, the logos, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word, the logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. Paul was preaching Jesus. 
Paul was preaching the word and he went on all the way up to midnight. The people are gathered around there. It must have been absolutely remarkable. I would give anything to be in that room, not in the window, but in that room, listening to the preaching of Paul as he shared the Logos. F.F. Bruce also said this. He said, church meetings were not regulated by the clock in those days. And the opportunity of listening to Paul was not one to cut short. It's amazing what we can give our attention to, isn't it? We took the kids last Friday, we could go Friday to see the Peanuts movie. An hour and a half of Charlie Brown, Lucy, Linus, and Snoopy. And I loved it. I'm a big Charles M. Schultz fan anyway. Love the movie. If you haven't seen it, go see it. It's rated G for glorious. There is not one crude joke, comment, no bodily function noises like they put in all the kids' movies now, not in the Peanuts movie. There were no cell phones. There were no computers. It was total throwback to the to Americana Charlie Brown. I absolutely loved it. I can't wait till it comes out on Blu-ray. I'm going to watch it every day. <laughs> An hour and a half I spent watching that thing and didn't hardly blink. I was so in. Think about what you put yourself into, what you will pay attention to, what you will listen to. We will hang on every word that matters to us, won't we? We don't get drowsy when what is spoken grabs our hearts. We don't get sleepy when the word matters, when it's important. We only do so when we've kind of lost interest. Think about this. When the exiles returned from Babylon, the Jewish exiles, driven out in 586 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar, taken into Babylonian captivity, they spent 70 years there. And then the Lord opened the doors for them to go back. And a few did. Several just stayed in Babylon because they got comfortable there. But those who came back came in waves. A wave came with Ezra. Another wave would come then later with Nehemiah. A wave would come in between. As these people made their way back into Judea, back to Jerusalem, and to the completely flattened, wiped out temple. In fact, they say the the temple was so destroyed at that point, it was hard to even see where the footprint was. And they came back to rebuild the temple and to rebuild Jerusalem. But we're told in the book of Nehemiah, I'll just read this to you, chapter 8, verse 1, that all the people gathered as one man in the square which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could listen with understanding. On the first day of the seventh month, he read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate from, listen, from early morning until midday. In the presence of men and women, those who could understand and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. What did Nehemiah do? He read Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, from early morning till midday, six to nine hours. And what's more remarkable than that is the people were attentive to it. Not having heard the law read in 70 years, 
They hung on every word. It tells us in chapter 9, on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting again in sackcloth and with dirt upon them. They were in a time of real repentance. And the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day. Do the math. Six hours. And then, then for another fourth, they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. My friends, that's a 12-hour church service. They listened to six hours of preaching. And then they worshipped and repented for six more hours. It's mind-boggling. But they got it. They wanted it. They were hungry for it. Did you do that thing on Thanksgiving Day where you get up and you don't, you try not to eat much because you want as much room as possible to shove as much as you can in there? They were starving for it. And so the case is when, when people start coming to church and either have never heard the Word of God or maybe they've been in a church that gives 15 minute homilies on Sundays. Rather than teaching the Word, what we find over and over is people are hungry. Well, sometimes a little stuffed, you know, right up front. If you're new to the bridge, you know, after 20, 30 minutes when you go, dude, he's not even into the first point. He's like three verses in on that big list. But what's remarkable is we tend to kind of get where, well, I can, I can eat a little more. I can handle more. I've looked back. I don't know if I've told you this, but I've looked back on the, on the teachings here at the bridge. You know what the average Sunday morning length of a sermon was when we first started? It's about 35 minutes. You know what the average is now? About an hour and five minutes. Is that just because Rick's longer-winded than he used to be? No, actually, I'm shorter-winded. I'm in my 50s. But no, it's because you all hear it. You're hungry for it. You, you want it. Because it's a word that matters. It's the word of truth in a world of lies. And it is getting in. And the Apostle Paul said to Timothy early on, 2 Timothy 4.1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead. And by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. Timothy, if you do nothing else in your church there in Ephesus... Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. It is the word, the word, the word. And Paul learned the message is not one of philosophical eloquence and ear-tickling articulation. It's not about crafting things that will keep people's attention. It is the preaching of Jesus. It's the word of God. It's the logos. And listen, I don't really care what you have to do. To pay attention, do it. What are you talking about? Cup of coffee? Drink it. You got to do something with your hands to stay busy so you can listen. I I can share this because Cheryl just left the the auditorium. Um, A couple of weeks ago on Wednesday night, she showed up and, and for school and for our kids, she had some things that needed to be colored. And she was a little out of time, but she wanted to be here. So she just brought it with her and she sat back about the third row with those pages and she was just listening and coloring. She loves to color. And she came home that night and she was able to recount almost everything we had talked about. And she said, you know, it was amazing. 
Normally I've got my Bible open, like you're supposed to, and I've got my, my notebook, and I'm trying to take notes, and I'm trying to follow the verses, and I'm doing all this, and then the next thing I know, God's got me rabbit-trailing here and rabbit-trailing there, and I, and, and I have trouble paying attention. Maybe you're like that. She said, when I was sitting there coloring, it was like my left brain was busy with this action, and my right brain was freed up to hear the Word. And she said, I heard it. So last Wednesday, she's back there coloring, smiling. She's asked for coloring pages for Christmas. I think she's losing it, but the point is this. Donna came up to me. Can I share this, Donna? All right. Came up to me after first service because she heard this already once, and she said, you know, I realized something. When I'm gathered in prayer groups, and we're just praying, sometimes I have to fight you know, to, to keep focused. She said, once I brought my knitting needles and was sitting in a prayer group and I was knitting and I was completely dialed in to every prayer. I was hearing the Lord. Made a complete difference. So, <laughs> this could be funny. Next Sunday we'd have a bunch of people come here and go, <laughs> do what you have to do to hear the Word. To be in. To be focused. Don't use this as an hour of got my church time, got my stamp, and now I can go on about the more important things of the week. Jesus wants you to hear His Word. He wants you to be in His Word. That's why Paul preached all evening long. Six hours, because Paul was so full of the Word. Knew how how life-changing it would be for the people in Troas to hear this. How hungry they were. David said this, he said, I will bow down toward your holy temple, Psalm 138, verse 2, and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth, for you have magnified your word above all your name. So important is the word of God that he magnifies it above his own name. His name is truth, his word is truth. And so Paul preaches and preaches and preaches, but i got to admit, I read the story and I think... (laughs) I have been among those who have gotten drowsy during sermons. We've all done it, right? Time to confess. We have all gotten drowsy. We've all done the nod. (laughs) Hallelujah! (laughs) Preach it, you know. I've shared here at the bridge before. I was uh, a young man, probably eight, nine years old, sitting in the second row on metal folding chairs on a tile floor in an elementary school where our church was renting so that we could meet. And I fell fast asleep, deep asleep, and woke up with a kick and kicked the metal chair in front of me about ten feet out on the tile floor. You know, and I'm like, I'm good. Preach on. We've all been there. And sometimes circumstances can make hearing more difficult. Consider the circumstances in Troas. This is a Sunday evening with some serious preaching. And in the culture of the day, Sunday was not a day off. This was a work day. This group of people gathered in that upper room that night had already worked 10 to 12 hours before showing up now for worship and and teaching. They had had a long day, but they wanted to be there. And verse 8 going on tells us there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. You see where this is going? End of a long day, lots of folks packed into a hot upper room and many lamps were burning. And these were probably those typical Middle Eastern oil lamps which create all manner of smokiness. So you got a hot, 
packed, smoky, oil lamp filled upper room and Paul preaching until midnight. Do you you understand why Eutychus may have gotten a little tired? And I want to cut him some slack because what he does is go to the window where it's cool. So he's doing what he can do so he can hear the word. It's not his fault. It's not that he's some kind of sixth center, you know. Oh, out there in the. It's not, he was not, not like in the back row. I'm kidding. Those of you in the back, it's not a not a slam on you. But in this room, the Christians, the early Christians, burned a lot of candles when they met. A lot of oil lamps. They liked it bright and lit up. It's interesting. They did that because there was a lot of rumor going around about this this movement, this thing called the Way. They eat flesh and blood. What's up with that? You know, and they have these these things they call love feasts. Well, from the pagan world, what does that sound like? You know, Aphrodite and Diana party time. I mean, that's what it would sound like to a pagan. Oh, love feast! So they're they're into that weird sexual stuff. Is that what's going on? And so, literally, historically, the early church would light lots. If they were meeting at night, they wanted it as bright as possible. Everything out in the open. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all transgression. So the room is lit up, but smoky and hot and packed at the end of a long day. It was Sunday evening, some serious preaching. Until number three, there was a sinking feeling. A sinking feeling. Verse 9. And there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. My friends, this is Dr. Luke writing. And Dr. Luke knows dead when he sees dead. Make no mistake about it. Eutychus died from that fall. The word Luke uses here for dead is necros, corpse. He was picked up a corpse. This young man died that night. He's not just dead tired. (laughs) Eutychus is gone, man. He is gone. And I want you to imagine the moment. To be part of the fellowship. What if it was us? All gathered in a third story upper room. Worshipping the Lord. Hearing the word taught. And all of a sudden, one of our own falls out of the window. Now see, I, I've you know, joked about this from time to time as a consequence of boring preaching. We all laugh about the story of Eutychus. Hey, there was nothing funny about it. Not to them. Not in that moment. It was a horrible moment of, of sudden tragedy. Imagine, and that's what I mean by a sinking feeling when you realize something has gone horribly wrong. Not what was supposed to happen that night. And verse 9 tells us, Did I already read verse 9? I did. Verse 10 tells us that Paul went down and fell upon him. And after embracing him, he said... Now now stop right there. Three things that Paul did. He went down, he fell upon him, and he embraced him. But the language is more graphic than that. He raced down the stairs. The word implies a falling fast. He fell down the stairs almost. He was going down there so fast. He fell upon him. Literally, he threw himself upon him and he embraced him. The word indicates completely surrounding. He grabbed hold of this young Eutychus. He pulled him to himself. 
Paul was truly terrified at what had just happened, racing down, grabbing this young man, pulling him in. The Bible doesn't tell us this, but I cannot imagine that Paul was doing anything other than praying, Oh God, no. Oh Jesus, please. Save this boy. No, that can't happen. He's praying in his mind. He's talking to the Lord. He's holding on to Eutychus. And the moment that boy went out the window, you know there had to be a sickening, sinking feeling among all those gathered in the fellowship. I had that feeling. I've had it a few times in my life. Once was back in 1981. I may have shared before that we were at Yosemite and me and a bunch of friends of mine and camping out there for a week. It was a week-long family encampment of Christians. There was worship times and teaching times for the day and you could obviously just enjoy the beauty of, of Yosemite. And after one of the evening devotionals, we were walking back to our campground and we walked across a bridge. And about halfway across the bridge, we stopped because there was commotion down in the Yosemite River. A 14-year-old boy from a youth group in Simi Valley had, had jumped off the bridge. Kids were jumping off the bridge and swimming. And it was twilight. He had jumped off the bridge and didn't come up. And word traveled very fast, and there were people on both shorelines. We were standing there on the bridge looking over and watching as this unfolded. I'll never forget the youth pastor, Murray, who was standing on the side, walking back and forth, watching to see what was going to happen. There were guys in little boats that were diving and trying to see if they could find him, and they brought him up, this limp body. He had died. He drowned. I will never forget the sound of Murray when he realized... They brought him over to the side and the boat, pulled him out, and he was dead. The, the, the cry echoed across the Yosemite Valley. It, it spooks me even now when I think about how horrible that was. And I don't tell you that to bring you down, but to get you into the mindset of the church at Troas that night. What actually happened? This young man fell down and he died. And if there's any one thing that horrifies people in this world, that's it. Death. The reality of it. Whether it's knife attacks in Jerusalem or AK-47s in Paris of all places. People are just scared and anxious. And we're coming up to Thanksgiving. What, O oh Lord, are we to be thankful for? Can I give you something? I've already given you a few. I want to read you something and I want you to hear it as if you had never heard it before, as if this was brand new information to you. 1 Corinthians 15, where the Apostle Paul writes, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. That is, we will not all die. But we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And then he says, the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. 
But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanksgiving. That's the deal. That in Jesus, we have a promise of everlasting life even if you die before He comes. The promise that He will raise you up to be with Him into eternal life. Happy Thanksgiving. Verse 10. So Paul fell, went down, fell upon him, embraced him, and he said, Do not be troubled. Which is exactly what Jesus said in John 14, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Do not let your hearts be troubled. The key in life to not letting your heart be troubled is knowing you have a place being prepared for you right now. And nothing can stop that save your own decision, your own choice, to choose Jesus and life forever or reject Jesus and you're on your own. That's your call. But once you have chosen Christ, nothing can get in the way. And so Paul says, do not let your heart be troubled. He says, do not be troubled. His life is in him. He's alive. And gang, this was a supernatural resurrection. It's the only way a corpse can suddenly have life in him. Supernatural resurrection. In the moment, Paul throws himself on this boy, draws him in, he's praying, and suddenly Eutychus sucks in a deep breath of air, and he's alive, and looking around like, dude, how'd I get here? And the people are gathering around. Can you imagine, number four, a sudden quickening? A sudden quickening to life. And Eutychus is not the first. You go all the way back to the Hebrew Scriptures, 1 Kings 17, and the prophet Elijah raises from the dead a widow's son and gives the son back to his mother. In 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha the prophet does the same thing. He raises a Shunammite woman's son and gives the son back to the mother. Peter, in Acts chapter 9, raises the the girl, the woman Tabitha, back to life. And of course, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. He raised people from the dead. We don't really even know how many people He raised from the dead, but we know three specifically. Because the Gospel writers tell us. Luke chapter 7, He raises a widow's son, gives gives him back to his mother. Jesus comes and gives this son back to his mom. Luke 7, the son was less than 24 hours dead on his way out to his burial when Jesus touches the coffin and he sits up. (laughs) And then in Luke chapter 8, he goes and he raises from the dead the synagogue leader's daughter. Well, she had just died. So you have a man who was less than 24 hours dead. You had a young girl who had just died. And then as if to make sure we didn't miss the power, John chapter 11 Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And he had been dead four days. Rotting in the tomb. His death was by far the most grave of the three. Eutychus now joins that select group. It is a very unique group of people in the history of the world. A people who died once, were resurrected, and get to die again. Two funerals. Two deaths. I don't know how long Eutychus would live after this. But I guarantee you he died. He may have lived into old age and then died an old man. He may have have fallen out a window the next week. We don't know. 
Maybe he was just naturally a klutz, uh, a klutz, and that's kind of how he met his end. But he would die again. Only one man in all of history died once so far, rose from the dead never to die again, and that's Jesus. To die on our behalf and to rise again and to live forever. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15.20, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Know what that means? There will be more. He's just the first. The first to die, to be raised, and to stay alive. Paul says in Romans 8 verse 10, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. And I love this verse because it's mind-boggling. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, if He dwells in you, He will also give life to your mortal body through His Spirit who dwells in you. That is incredible power. The same Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who was involved in the raising of Christ from the dead. And I say involved because Father and Son were involved too. But the Spirit who had the power to raise Christ from the dead, that same Spirit of God is in you if Christ is in you. That's life, man. That is hope right now, and it is life that's not just for today or for tomorrow or for this season. It is life forever. You want to replace the sinking feeling of loss or despair in your life? Replace it with the sudden quickening of life in Christ Jesus. It's what He promises. It's what He offers. Well, verse 11 tells us when He, that is Paul, had gone back up and had broken bread and eaten, He talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. Okay, Paul, your preaching is knocking them dead. You're killing them. And He goes back upstairs and preaches again. Listen to what took place. There was a Sunday evening with some serious preaching, a sinking feeling, and a sudden quickening. Number five, and there was some sweet fellowshipping. And it's interesting because the first half of the evening is now over. The second half begins, and the second half was not Paul preaching. Well, but, but it says that he talked with him. Yeah, the word is omeleo in the Greek. Omeleo, which means to converse, to associate. We would say to hang out with. To chill, to relax, to fellowship. Not unlike what happens here at the bridge after teaching, especially on Wednesday nights. It's amazing. It'll be 8.45, 9 o'clock, and people are hanging out. You know, I feel like Forrest, uh, uh, not Forrest, Ferris Bueller at the end of the movie. You know, Ferris, when he shows up at the end after the credits, and he's like, it's over. Go home. Go. That's what was happening here. The preaching had taken place. And then Eutychus falls out the window. He dies. Paul rushes down. Resurrection happens. And what more glorious way to celebrate resurrection than they went back upstairs and broke bread. They took communion together. There's a communion devotion for you, Brian. Think about that. Eutychus sitting there, alive, resurrected. This is the body of Christ broken for us that we might, well, like be like Eutychus. 
and the wine which is blood of redemption that we might be like Eutychus. I mean, what a marvelous night. And they hung out together and they stayed together. These people who had worked all day the day before and would go to work the next morning all just loving each other, loving being together. Paul's going to travel the whole next couple of days and he stays awake all night because he can't stand to leave the people. Some sweet fellowshipping. And John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. The fellowship of, of saints, the fellowship of believers is about the joy. Am I right? Am I right? Is it a big drag to hang out together? I mean, do you just hate each other? Or do you look forward to seeing family when we gather here? By the way, does this night at Troas sound at all familiar? 25 years earlier, this was written about the first century church, the beginnings of the church, Acts 2.42. They continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. All they were doing that night in Troas was the same thing the church had been doing for 25 or 30 years. It's all we're doing this morning. What the church has been doing for 2,000 years. One last thing. Look at verse 12. And if you think one last thing means we're almost done, you got another thing coming. They took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. All tryptophan and turkey aside, all carbohydrates and cream pies, set it aside. How do we keep from sinking into sleep in these last days? Turn in your Bibles over to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. It's the last book in the Bible, easiest to find. You Bible students know that Jesus sent seven letters to seven churches. These seven churches were historical churches. And one of those churches is Sardis, that we could call the sleepy church. Listen to this. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, this is Revelation 3 verse 1, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. Seven spirits of God is the Holy Spirit. Okay? Seven stars referring to the churches, the pastors, uh, the fellowships. He says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. This is Jesus' warning, not just to an historically sleepy church, but to a sleepy church present in the world today, the Sardis of today. What are you talking about, Rick? I'm talking about where the church is cool and comfortable with the culture. Sitting in the window of the world. Kind of one foot in, one foot out. The believer who says, oh yeah, I believe this, but I'm chill with the world. I'm good. It's the church that is drowsy, listen to me on this, with regards to doctrine, which is the Word of God. 
I told you I've seen things on Facebook from time to time, which is why I'm, I don't go to Facebook. It just bugs me. It does. I see things posted by Christians on Facebook, and I go, are you serious? What? Playing around with opinion over the Word of God. Well, I have this opinion about this, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, you know what? I really could give a rip about your opinion. And I hope you feel the same way about me. Truly. Because sometimes I'll give my opinion and I hope you sit there and go, I don't care what you think, Rick. Can we get back to the Word? What does the Word say? You see... And I'm speaking to cultural Christians today. Not all of you, but there are some in our fellowship who who would just as soon hang with the world as hang with Jesus. You better make God's Word your opinion. Let God's Word be your basis for what you believe, not how you feel about something. Because I guarantee you, as a man who is 51 years old, I feel very differently about this world than I did when I was 21 years old. Or 31 or 41. Your opinions are going to change. You will wake up to find one morning that something that you held so dear is really lame. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And what His Word says stands. And will always stand to the very end of time whether my American culture agrees with it or not. The Word of God but we got those who are getting drowsy with doctrine. Ah, don't tell me what the Bible says. I know. Of course, Pastor Rick has to teach those things. He's a pastor. He has to live a pure and righteous life. What about the church where Christians sink into the deep sleep of indifference? Doesn't really matter. People are going to hell in a handbasket around me. Doesn't matter. I'm just, you know... I'm just hanging out. It appears to me, and I say this with with all seriousness, it appears to me that there will be people who think that they are followers of Jesus, who think that they are Christians, who go to church, but who, if they do not wake up, will have a falling out. They will miss when the church is called home. Well, Rick, that's just your opinion. Let me let you hear Jesus' word on the matter. Revelation chapter 3, verse 3, continuing, He says, If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. You don't wake up, I will come. You've heard the phrase, like a thief in the night. Let me be very clear to you. Jesus only will come like a thief in the night to those who are not looking for Him. He only comes as a thief to those who do not expect Him. One is the master of this world. Jesus describes talking about Satan. Matthew 24, 43 says, Be sure of this. If the head of the house, the devil had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Satan doesn't know when Jesus is coming. Lots of people don't know. I don't know when Jesus is coming, but I'll tell you one thing, I am looking for him. And I want to be wide awake when he does come. Doesn't mean I can't get a good night's sleep. (laughs) 
but I fall asleep in His arms to wake up in His arms to look forward to being in His arms. He will not come as a thief in the night to me, gang. I may be a bit surprised the moment that He calls and may be like, oh, it's now and up we go. I won't even have time to say that. It's going to be more like, ah, gone. But my friends, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 4, You brethren are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness, so then do not let us sleep as others do, but let us be alert, let us be sober. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.9 he says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Keep your eyes open. Don't get drowsy with doctrine. Don't be sleepy with the Word. Don't be indifferent to what Jesus is doing. Let this impact you. Let these words matter to your heart and thank God for them constantly. Because again, Jesus says, you want to stay awake in these last days? He says, wake up, verse 2. Verse 3 of Revelation 3, He says, here's how you do it. Remember what you have received. Remember what you have heard. He says, and keep it. Be doers of the word. Don't just hear it and walk out of here going, oh, that was my service. Be doers of it. Live by it. Be awake in it. And he says, and repent. Which simply means to turn to God. And in verse 4 he says, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. <laughs> Talk about some clear language. You have two ways you can stand before Jesus. You can stand with a a garment white and clean or a garment that's soiled. What's the problem here? Well, I soiled myself, Lord. Says they will walk with me in white, those who have not soiled their garments, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's not hard to stay awake in these last days if you've got an ear to hear. If you will listen to his word. Now, Eutychus, Eutychus was fortunate, wasn't he? His name works. He had a good fallen in. He fell out, but he was resurrected. So the story ends well for him. This story of this drowsy dude is a wake-up call, however, for the church. It is a wake-up call for us, gang. I'll show you one last thing here. I, I don't know if this was intentional on the part of the Spirit of God or not. But I saw something that caught my eye at the end of this story. So impressed me. You see, I see a picture here of the church. Eutychus is a picture of the church. I'm Eutychus. What do you mean? I mean, I was sitting in the window, enjoying the cool breeze. I was a drowsy young man in church. I slept through more sermons than I... Well, I don't remember them because I slept through them. Until I came to the end of myself. Until I fell out the window. And I came to the end of myself. And I died to myself and was born again. Raised to walk in a new life. You know what happens after that? 
Look at verse 12 again. They took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. They took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. And for those who are born again, those who wake up, those who are looking for Jesus, you will be taken away. If He comes in our lifetime, you will be taken away alive and greatly comforted. I see in verse 12 a picture of the rapture of the church. Paul says the dead in Christ will rise first. Man, if you've died in Christ Jesus, that's cool. You're going to rise first. You will be taken away alive. And then we who are alive, that is at the time of His coming, and remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. And know what Paul says, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And they all went away greatly comforted. Happy Thanksgiving. There is so much we have to be thankful for. The greatest of which is where we're going. If in fact our lives are in Christ Jesus. I hope your life is. Let me be totally straight with you. This is not mumbo-jumbo religion. If you want Jesus, all you got to do is ask. You want to be saved and know that you have an eternal life with Him. The Gospel is simple. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. Take Him as your Lord and Savior. Believe that He died and rose again, taking your place on the cross. That you might come and be with Him. Dead or alive forever. It's the Gospel. And all you got to do is believe. If you would like to receive Jesus this morning... John, come on up. We're going to sing a song together in a moment. And you can come and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior today and start your eternity right now. You can get baptized in the waters of baptism, die to self, raised to walk in a newness of life as Paul records it. If you are a believer and you're struggling with anxiety, if you're struggling perhaps with drowsiness, if you're starting to realize, wow, I have been indifferent to these things. And you need to repent, as Jesus said, confess that to the Lord. Come forward. While we sing, and have a seat on either one of these benches to the right or left of me. We'll have people on our prayer team come up, pray with you, talk with you. And let's ask the Lord to bless this time of ministry. Father, we come before you now. We thank you for your word. What an awesome word you have for us. That we who fall out of the window and die can be raised to live forever with Jesus. There is great comfort in these words. I pray, Father, now for the entire fellowship, for everyone gathered here this morning, that we will all be part of those who are taken away alive. Alive. Bless your name, Jesus. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Come if you need to.